Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hey everyone, it's Lindsay Rhodes and I've got a new podcast, The NFL Road Show. Fun and kind of nerdy conversation about the NFL every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. I've got some amazing guests that are joining me. I'll be breaking the huddle with the top stories, previewing games. We'll get you set for the weekend fantasy with our Fantasy Friday episodes, and we'll answer some of your questions as well. So subscribe to the NFL Roadshow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me is my good buddy Cam Robinson. Cam, what's going on, man? Uh, not too much, Dim. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm excited. It's the holidays. We uh, Hockey's back on the horizon. We've got the World Juniors coming up this week. We've got the NHL season announced after that, and we're going to be doing a... We recently rewatched the game of our own. We watched the uh, 2011 World Juniors gold medal game between Team Canada and, and Team Russia, and uh, it was quite the game, and I gave you some homework. You watched it yourself. We made a bunch of notes, and we're going we're gonna to go through all the categories and rewatch this one together. Yeah, it was uh, it was a nice little amuse bouche for uh, a starved hockey community, and especially for for you and I. Anyways, is is kind of a, a nice little amp up for the the World Juniors that are taking off here in just a couple of days, and then like you said, uh, the NHL firing up a couple of weeks after that. So, yeah, it's been it's been a bit of a bit of a struggle here with everything going on, but the normalcy of the World Juniors and and getting to watch Canada collapse in 2011 that uh, gets the fire burning a little bit too. All right, we're gonna let's just get right into it because uh, you and I are are notorious for running really long when we do shows together. So um, we may as well start. And the first category we're gonna do is the legacy of the game, or basically how I think about it is kind of like why we chose to do this one, why it's so rewatchable, why is it, why it's important in the context of uh, kind of hockey history and what we can learn from it. And so for me, the reason why I picked this one is because I thought it was sort of the perfect. Um, kind of appetizer for the world juniors coming up this week because it kind of has it really captures everything that makes the world juniors so special for me right it has all these like wild swings the actual quality of play might not necessarily be the best especially when you compare it to like even a regular season nhl game but 
it has this emotion, this energy, this electric atmosphere, and kind of volatile swings in the game. And, uh, you know, it's a gold medal game between Canada and Russia. It's got the epic comeback, which we're going to get into. And it also uh, prominently features some pretty, pretty incredible names, both, both good and bad. And this is the 10-year anniversary, I believe, of this game coming up this year. And so we've also had the benefit of kind of seeing how a lot of these players actually wound up developing as pros. So we can kind of talk about where we got it wrong, where we got it right in our evaluations uh, all these years later. So I think you put that all together and it kind of makes it a really interesting thought experiment just because there's so many different angles you can kind of poke and prod with. Yeah, without a doubt. So, you know, you mentioned the collapse or the comeback or however we want to look at it. Um, Pardon me. I think it's also the legacy of the game is just and we can talk about it a little bit later on. I have some notes on too, is that just kind of the, the height of the Russian fear, you mm-hmm. know, where, where skilled Russian players were falling down draft boards, you know, the KHL was rolling, the MHL was just getting fired up. Um, and it was just this kind of almost cold war Soviet era fear that we had, uh, going across the, the Atlantic there too. So I think that this was, this was really prototypical of it as what we saw through the, through the 60s, 70s, 80s. Uh, and then we had a little microcosm of it in, in 2011, where it was the Canadians against the Russians and the comeback and the defeat and all that going on, too. So obviously, the legacy of this game is is one that holds a, a lot of emotions for Canadians and, and for Russians. And, and probably everyone outside of Canada enjoyed watching them get knocked off their pedestal, too. Well, and I believe at some point during the game, during the broadcast, they're talking, I forget about which player, but they're talking about sort of that fear for NHL teams of uh, investing high draft picks in Russian players just because they're unsure of when they're going to come over without any sort of transfer agreement in place and we're going to save it for the for the commentary corner section but certainly i think pierre Maguire only adds fuel to the fire in terms of uh that russian fear element that you were talking about but yeah i think it's interesting maybe i think it's part of it because it's like the broadcast we watch is you know tsn hosts it and uh they kind of control the coverage of it or sort of uh the framing of it and so i remember at the time thinking of this game as what a what a cataclysmic collapse by Canada. I can't believe they blew that game. Watching it back all these years later and just seeing the talent Russia had, I think if anything, it's amazing that Canada had that three nothing lead in the first place because, you know, you could argue that Russia has the three best players in this game and they certainly flex their muscles in the third period. But yeah, so for me, it, it, it's just the framing of it is so amazing with the benefit of hindsight because it's a total 180 in terms of viewing it initially as a collapse and now as more more so of like kind of like natural course uh running and also just russia just eventually their talent winning out and then making a, a special comeback yeah yeah without a doubt like you said it's looking back at those rosters it's is how did canada even have a three nothing lead right like that when, when you look at them on paper now it's if you stack those two teams up against each other it would be you'd expect a massive blowout for the russians and it wouldn't it wouldn't be funny any other way so uh no it is it's i think it's really nice to look back uh, 10 years later usually you say for a draft or for assessing players that you want to wait until they're in their mid-20s or getting towards their late 20s to really make those concrete uh, assessments on where you were right and where you were wrong and so for us here 10 years out these guys you know uh, a whole host of them are either retired or playing tier two in europe or something like that and then you know a whole bunch of them are superstars in the nhl and and the majority of those are playing on the russian side i guess another legacy of this game is i didn't know put this in what age the best or the worst but uh you know the story that came out after team russia celebrating so hard after the game that they got kicked off of their team plane and had to fly home the next day and uh listen as someone who May have enjoyed a couple adult beverages before I was the uh, the legal drinking age myself. I'm not going to uh, 
you know, comment on that. They certainly <laughs> deserved it based on a, a special game that I'm sure they hold near and dear to their hearts. But I remember that was kind of a funny story at the time. And uh, it certainly kind of looped into the legacy of this game and also kind of just like the allure of this tournament, right? It's that it's that energy. It's that emotion that's if channeled correctly leads to this like special. It's, it's kind of like it's its own separate entity, right? Like you can't really compare this tournament to anything else. It kind of has its own sort of special place in 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 sort of the hockey hockey world yeah it does and and you know i've I've spoken to former players who have played in this event too and and they they echo those sentiments is that it's unique in itself because you know these guys get together usually it's just for like a quick blip for a training camp and some scrimmages and and pre-tournament games and then when the tournament's over like everyone's usually getting on flights and heading back to wherever they're playing and maybe playing the next night or two nights later and so it's it's a quick turnaround but afterwards especially the teams that win is that that bond is there forever and you know they might end up playing against each other for 10 15 years in the nhl never playing on the same teams but they have that moment where they were together and they took home gold for their nation and so uh, i forgot about that that this was the year that the kids got uh, a little too saucy on the on the plane and got kicked out that was hilarious though when that came out because yeah you know we're not going to pass judgment here on on some 18 19 year olds enjoying some beverages but uh yeah it's I, i think that a lot of people especially canadians probably feel like this is this is their event and that you know it, the pressure's on them and when they win that's the explosion but you know for for a nation like russia too this is a they they take their hockey very very seriously and so for them to to win that tournament it's you can see right the russians screaming into the camera after the game and just you know you can understand what they're saying in russian but they were fired up and and i think that's natural well i believe in this broadcast they also say that um canada had beaten them there in their three previous meetings in the gold medal game, including uh, 2005, when that all-star team that Canada had basically just steamrolled them and embarrassed them. And so, um, yeah, there, there's that element to it as well. Let's get into what age the best then, because um, actually, I, I think what age the worst in, in this section is going to have more uh, content. But, you know, in the order of uh, that we're going through here, let's do what age the best. So what, what kind of stuck out to you as aging the best after all these years? Yeah, I got a couple uh, just for fun here is, uh, is Eric Goodbranson almost ripping Ashton's head off when he scored that uh, that 2 nothing goal. He jumped on him and gave him the neck wrench and maybe just a, a little foreshadowing for Goodbranson's career. You know, big guy, glue guy, neck wrencher type of player out there. Um, but yeah, you, uh, can see, you can see Ashton get up and his helmet is literally ripped off of off of his head. And he just has this look of disbelief like what just happened? I, I might have just gotten cussed by my teammate. Right. And then he grabs him again and pulls him back in right by the neck. But uh, that, I thought that was comical. But um, I think another one, too, is is kind of Zach Cassian's game, that that insane mix of physicality and those buttery soft hands that he have that we that we saw so much in junior. And, you know, he looked like he was going to be the next Todd Bertuzzi. And so in this game, I think he showcased that a lot. You know, he didn't he didn't get uh, he wasn't all over the map. He was he was all over the map early there and then kind of fizzled out towards later game. But it's I think it's really awesome to see that he's cleaned up his life and he's found that combination again in Edmonton in recent years. Um, so I think I think that part of his game is th- that age best here. Well, and you, you you actually see a lot of those uh, very valuable skills that he puts on display in this game. It's what made, has made him sort of an effective NHLer and have this second shelf life where he was like this post hype prospect, right? Where like he obviously didn't develop into the just dominant power forward that we thought he might have been based on how he looked in junior and when he was drafted, but especially playing in Edmonton with, with, with McDavid where he just earned himself a nice little contract. Like it's easy to be like, Oh, well, if you're going to play with McDavid, you're going to put up points and you're going to make some money and you're going to look better than you actually are. But just in terms of kind of 
going after the puck, throwing the body around, also filling space. I thought Pierre Maguire did a great job of illustrating, I believe on the first goal, Ryan Ellis scores where Cassian kind of occupies the middle of the ice, which which sucks in the defense and allows that cross seam pass from from Shen to Ellis, which is basically like the hockey equivalent of, a, of an alley-oop. And Cassian doesn't even get an assist on the play, I believe, but just his presence on the ice there and the defense having to account for him is, makes him valuable. And he's sort of... Um, found a way to kind of replicate that at the NHL level all these years later. Yeah, I had that written down here too. Kind of that gravitational pull mm-hmm. that he had on the ice for that team is that because he's so big and he did have those soft hands and that skill package that I love that breakdown of that play too because it looks like it's Shen doing a nice kind of pause head fake and selling it to the defenders and then leaving Ellis wide open. But, but you know, Pierre was right on that is that it was Cassian driving down the middle there and, and pulling that coverage and opening up. And like you said, Ali Oop, it was just a basically a tap in from, from the top of the circles for, for Ellis. And, and those two Shen and Ellis were just so amazing in that whole tournament and, you know, Shen going for the record breaking uh, point totals and everything. So uh, yeah, that was, I think that was a good story with Cassian. I would say, um, well, let's stick with Ellis then because, you know, he obviously had a remarkable year, uh, remarkable career, I should say, junior career playing for Team Canada. Uh, one of a handful of players, they ran this graphic uh, to medal in three different years. Um, he also, you know, put up these crazy point totals, but you sort of saw his value in this game in terms of how much they were relying on him and how sort of shook up everyone was where he, he got hurt there for a little bit in the second period, I believe. And everyone's like, Oh my God, like this is, this could change the game here if he's going to miss any significant time. And I remember as this transition happened where he went from this crazy point getter in major junior with his size, wondering kind of what his NHL career was going to look like, whether he'd be able to replicate that success, whether, he would just be too small to be effective in the league. And obviously now, all these years later, he's a remarkable defenseman. Um, you know, he isn't putting up the crazy point totals that he did uh, as a younger player, but is still wildly effective, always has through the roof underlying numbers, is I think often overlooked just because of his kind of stature and also the fact that he's not putting up jaw-dropping totals and playing next to Roman Yossi, he's going to kind of garner a lot of the attention. But Ellis has been wildly effective. And so all these years, he's Jay's your best just because, especially the sort of stark contrast where you've got like Jared Cowan, Eric Goodbranson, even Dylan Olsen, and all these guys that kind of that represent this past era of hockey where it can't work. Uh, Hockey Canada was so slow to adjust and adapt to the modern game. And then you've got on the complete polar opposite, you've got Ryan Ellis, who just looks so wildly different than all these other guys, but wound up having such a significantly better career and was on this team an even more valuable player. Yeah, it was. It, I think that only adds more credence to just how valuable and how impressive he was as a, as a U20 player. Because like you said, is that Canada was so slow to get on board with these puck moving skilled defensemen that can play on both sides of the puck um, versus the big brawny guys that are going to clear the front of the net. But, but Ellis was so good at that even early on is that it, he just rose right to the top, right? A three-year player. And then he was the captain and, and he literally did everything. He was stepping up and laying the boom as, you know, as a small guy, he, you see players when they're wearing their national jerseys, uh, they change their game. And I thought it was interesting. They talked about Tyson Berry too, is that, 
you know, he didn't play that way in junior, but he was out there playing defensive, blocking shots, diving to make plays. And we saw it from Ellis too. And, and like you said, now we're 10 years out from this event and now we're just starting to see kind of Ryan Ellis push the needle offensively in a similar mold that he did in that game. And that, at that age level too, is, you know, he was on pace for whatever 60 plus points this past year. I think he you know, was on pace for 60 a couple years before that. And so he still has that gear. It's just, he's in a system now that doesn't really allow him to do it on a regular basis. But, uh, you know, as far as when you look back at top defensemen for Canada at that event all time, like he's, he's got to be one of the top. Well, it's interesting that you bring up that, that, uh, system of his in, in Nashville, because that really stuck out to me the way he was used in this game on that power play where he's essentially like occupying the Ovechkin spot where he kind of creeps in and he gets into that shooting position. And, for whatever reason, he's always kind of been overlooked in Nashville, right? Like they initially had Shea Weber and then they brought in PK Subban and then now everything kind of funnels through Roman Yossi. And meanwhile, Ryan Ellis's entire time has this absolute weapon of a shot from the point and like kind of this offensive instinct to step in strategically and kind of pick his spots. But he's kind of had to play a different type of game, maybe a more sort of, uh, defensively sound or defensively oriented game to kind of uh, as a chameleon work his way around the players that have been on the blue line with him and so I wonder if we've kind of seen him fully unleashed or fully used and you know at this point it might never happen but you kind of watch this and you think oh man like maybe in a different situation he could have been even more effective as an offensive threat just because he clearly had those elements to his game no I'm with you 100% too and you know, it, if he went one pick earlier to Edmonton, like what kind of numbers would we be seeing out of him for his career here too, right? So it, it is kind of a... And that's what you got to look at with players too, is that it's not just what they can bring, it's where they're going, how they're going to be developed, what kind of systems they're going to be put into. Um, it's going to play a, a major role. And, and, you know, at the same time, maybe he wouldn't have been as as strong a defender if he did go to a different organization too. So his on ice impact is, is very, very high, even if he doesn't get all the glory with, with those big minutes, those big numbers. Um what age the best the crowd i mean where it feels like it's been ages since we've seen uh, a live raucous hockey crowd obviously and uh you know hopefully one day we'll be able to see it again when it's safe to do so but this was a particularly electric atmosphere and it it's in buffalo but it may as well have been in canada because the crowd is pretty much entirely uh Team Canada sort of allegiances and you know they're losing their minds and they're early going after the goals like when Ryan Ellis scores he's just slamming up against the boards and you know the, the fans are just going crazy but then when Russia starts scoring and especially I think theatrically you've got that like goal siren of theirs and the crowd the combination of that and also in the background the crowd just being completely sort of stunned and speechless as they're scoring goals and goals and goals and tying it up and then taking the lead and all of that kind of adds to that drama from the storytelling perspective of like how much this game shifted on a dive in terms of like just going one way and then all of a sudden it's just an entirely different feel to it and so i thought what age the best was just that the that kind of combination is that russian goal siren was just like it was kind of deafening in a way, right? Because it just completely drowned out everything else. Yeah, and it, and, and it, like you said, it just started started to chip away at the belief of the crowd that was so amped up early, and they get that three nothing lead, and they're going nuts. And and you're right, it is it's it's always fun to see when when another nation kind of invades the the the, the northern U.S. and and takes it over, and and that was cool to see in Buffalo and. And, you know, talking about hopefully we get to see a, a situation like that again soon. But this this coming World Juniors, it's going to be really interesting because 
you know, no one's going to have that, that home ice advantage to get all that energy just racing, coursing through your blood while you're playing. But at the same time, you're also not going to have that that big deflation that happens. So maybe if the crowd doesn't get taken out of that game because there is no crowd, maybe the Canadians are able to weather the storm a little bit better, but it, it starts to pile on. You can see it happening as as each goal goes in, the bench starts to get their heads start to hang a little bit lower. The fans start to lose it. The energy starts to get sucked out of the Canadian bench too. And yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I think that that aged best because we we crave seeing a, a game with with some raucous fans here too but i think it also impacted maybe a little bit of, of what occurred in that later in that game that's very true um i guess the the final what age the best i have is just that trio of kuznetsov tarasenko and panarin um you know arguably like the most talented sort of trio they weren't really necessarily on the ice for for large chunks it felt like they were kind of spreading them out and trying to have at least one of them on the ice at all times but in the third period especially with kuznetsov it felt like he literally just did not leave the ice at at all times and you know i guess in 2005 you've got like a line with bergeron crosby and, and Corey perry and, and and that's pretty good i've heard of all three of those guys too but just in terms of like pure sort of uh talent that just got channeled at the right time it was just overwhelming and, and Canada really I mean they were under equipped to handle it because as you see like Evgeny Kuznetsov with a full head of steam on the rush versus Dylan Olsen that's not great um but it doesn't matter who Canada had like even if they had those 2005 guys like it still would have been very difficult based on how these guys were playing and so for me just just those three like the stock they had at this time as kind of relative unknowns, even though, you know, obviously Tarasenko and Kuznetsov were first, first round picks, they still weren't necessarily considered these like all world can't miss, you know, top three guys. Like there was still a certain level of, will they pan out? Will they come over? It took a couple of years for, for each of these guys to actually come over to the NHL and play and make an impact. And so at this time, just seeing them dominate like that, and then now with the benefit knowing that they turned into NHL superstars, um, it's pretty crazy that, like, you know, just how far we've come with them in these 10 years. Yeah, without a doubt, especially, you know, looking at Tarasenko and Kuznetsov is that they were kind of bit players on the the 2010 team for the Russians. And that that goes with how Russia usually does things. It's a 19 year old tournament. It's a 19 year old team that they bring. And those are the guys that they play. Um, you know, Tarasenko played a little bit more than Kuznetsov the year before. But but then so, you know, we hear about them. <clears throat> Tarasenko goes whatever 15 16 that he went uh, in the NHL draft but for for a lot of people in North America they'd never really seen them play right they're not watching Sibir in the KHL uh, on their weekday morning especially back in 2011 2010 um, so yeah to see them up close and personal and to see them you know some of those goals like that that 3-3 goal that Kuznetsov set up or maybe that was a 4-3 goal I can't remember but whatever it was that spinning dish over to Tarasenko he gets, one, I believe, yeah. yeah yeah he gets down and buries it like that's that's literally like that's a goal in any league in the world and you're not going to be able to defend it. And uh, so I think you're absolutely right. And that kind of leads me into what aged worst. Okay, and that and that is, uh, you know, who was watching this game? What what GMs were watching this game or this tournament and thought to themselves like, nah, we don't want to take a flyer on our Temi Panarin in the sixth or the seventh round. Uh, or, you know, how about after he goes a PPG in the KHL for a couple of years? Like, let's just toss him a UFA deal. You know, Tarasenko begging his coaches and, and management to sign this kid. It's like, you know, fuck pro scouts. Like, listen to your star when he's talking about this. Like, you can go watch the highlights, too. It's just that that to me age the worst is that how you miss that that level of talent assessment um on on Jeremy Panarin yeah I don't know if that's 
what age the worst? I mean, it's clearly what age the worst, but I, I kind of thought it might be an, uh, an unanswerable question just because I don't really have an answer. Like, I guess, you know, an undersized Russian player at this time, people were still un, un, unsold. I guess they weren't sold on him when he was going to come over. Um, but I mean, think about it this way. So as an 18-year-old, he's got nine points in 20 KHL games, which is top 10 for an 18-year-old in that league. This in this season in the 2010-2011 season he's got 21 points in 40 games in the KHL he's playing and they uh, mentioned this on this just dreadful team that went like 13 and 40 or something in the KHL and like one of their leading scorers is Chris Simon and it's a mess of a team but he's like playing against grown men in a professional league and producing especially relative to his age bracket and then goes on and just keeps kind of getting better and better and better and eventually we see him come over to Chicago in, in 2015 but it's crazy that it took that long and it's like the combination of him producing in a pro league but also as you said in this tournament and in this game on the biggest stage on a national level against his peers just sticking out and dominating it's crazy to me that there wasn't some director of amateur scouting somewhere that was like yeah we're gonna spend a fourth round pick on this guy like i just don't understand how that happened and how it was so wildly overlooked and I don't know. I don't know what could have happened there to account for it, but just purely based on his on ice performance at pretty much every level, he certainly warranted at least like taking a long shot flyer on him at some point in one of those years. Right. It's it's almost like they were saying is that they're like unless these guys are elite, elite, clear elite talent, we're not interested in them. Um, but you know, you look at that 2010 draft, and you know, a guy like Kirill Kabanov goes in the third, or or Maxim Kitsin in the sixth. It's like who? I don't know these. You know, like Maxim Chudinov goes in the in the seventh to Boston. It's like there's got to be somebody out there, like you said, who watched. They could have watched just this one game and been like, that's interesting. He can obviously play with high level talent. Oh, look, he put up points as an 18 year old in the KHL. Like if we if we look at a draft class right now and there's an 18 year old playing on a terrible team in the KHL and putting up decent points, half point a game or something like that, he's getting drafted. Like that's there's just no two ways about it. So it kind of just leads back to that that peak of that Russian fear where. I think a lot of organizations probably just had it right on their board. You know, do not draft Russians. We're not going to waste a pick on them if they're not going to come over. And, and, you know, we all had to wait forever for Kuznetsov. It felt like and that hype and that yep. that anticipation just growing year after year. Like, when's he going to come? How good is he going to be? Um, but, you know, as we see, he he they come. They came over. It's like it's just a wasted opportunity. Well, think about I guess there's been that kind of natural progression, right? Like you had. Kirill Kaprizov was a fifth round pick, I believe, in, in 2015, and now he's finally coming over. And I think Minnesota Wild fans, I think NHL fans in general, should be very excited because I think he's going to just explode at NHL level. But then, like this year, for example, you see a Murat Kuznetinov. Minnesota takes a chance on him at, at 37th overall, and I believe traded up to get that pick to take him because they thought he wouldn't fall further. And that is that progression. I think once you see it a handful of times in the league, maybe it makes you feel more comfortable. And, you know, clearly NHL teams have, for the most part, come around on it. And it's not as big of an issue anymore, but we have sort of seen that progression. So, you know, hopefully that'll continue because we love to see talent in the game, regardless of where the players are coming from. I think with Panarin in this game, what stuck out to me, though, was maybe it was a product of just sort of who he was playing with and, and his role in the team. But it's he's not even dominating the way he dominates today in the NHL where he just has the puck on a string and he's carrying it all around the ice and sort of creating he was kind of more of a a bit player in this regard right where he was just sort of going to the open spaces and then capitalizing 
on great passes. And so, if anything, how would you not watch that and be like, oh, this guy can clearly, as you said, play with good players. So let's just see if he can produce once we bring him up to play with even better players in the NHL. Like, it seems like a very logical opinion to have. Exactly right. That that speaks to a player's intelligence when yeah. they can, if they're not as skilled as the ones around them. And at that time, Panarin wasn't as skilled as Tarasenko or, or Kuznetsov, but he was able to find those soft areas of the ice. He was able to give and go with them and to play with them and read off of them. And, and that's just an IQ thing. Um, and then just going back just a half second there is too is it is that you're right. I think that there still is some fear with with Russian players. You know, we we heard the 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 rumor that Vasily Podkolzin was offered a five year extension on his KHL deal moments before the draft. Recognize employees with Custom Ink. Show customer appreciation with Custom Ink. Outfit your teams with Custom Ink. Easily add your logo to your favorite products and brands at custominc.com. Make Custom Ink your custom gear partner with great customer service, quality products, and all-in pricing, along with personalized help when you need it and an easy-to-use website when you don't. All backed by a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Do it all today at custominc.com. In, in 2019 and he rejected it and consequently his ice time I think is has been impacted by that and then now we're looking at a kid uh, Matt V. Mitchkoff who's going to be top two anyways in 2023 he just signed an extension that's going to keep him with Scott in the KHL until he's 21 um, so uh, in a couple of years there's going to be a team that's going to have a big decision to make is that you know are we going to draft this kid who should be in the NHL tomorrow and wait three years on him right now are we going to take uh, someone who's in North America or Sweden or Finland who we're going to be able to plug and play next season or the year after so I think that's still going to play a bit of a role here but like you're saying it's we're slowly coming out of it all right let's take a quick break here to hear from a sponsor and then we're going to keep going with the categories 2020 has really forced all of us to reshape the way we work Businesses across the globe are challenged more than ever before to be as efficient as possible, making each hire they make all the more critical. And that's why Indeed is here to help, because Indeed helps you find quality candidates quickly, so you can focus on hiring the person you need to keep your business going. Unlike other job sites out there, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need, you can pause your account at any time, and there are no long-term contracts. And now, Indeed's new way of matching you with candidates instantly delivers a short list of quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job criteria which allows you to contact them the moment you sponsor a job, making Indeed the only job site they can move as fast as you do. Speaking of meaning to move fast to find a quality candidate to fill a particular job, the NHL season is rapidly approaching. There's a bunch of big name free agents still out there looking for work, and there's a bunch of teams I can think of that have cap space available and have certain needs that could desperately use an upgrade. So what I'm saying is that there's various NHL GMs out there that could benefit from taking my advice using Indeed to find a quality candidate and help and improve their team before the start of the new season. Here's what I'll do for them. Right now, Indeed's offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost their job post, which means that more quality candidates will see it and they're going to see it fast. So try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. This is their best offer available anywhere, so make sure you let them know we sent you and they're going to hook you up. Go right now to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. The offer is valid through December 31st. Terms and conditions apply. The new NHL season starts on January 13th, which gives us a couple weeks now to get ready for it and make our predictions. If you're looking for a place to wager on things like who you think makes the playoffs this year or who you think is going to win the Calder, then go to betonline.ag. They're sponsoring today's show, and they're also going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on every possible chance to win this season. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, BetOnline gives you more options to wager than anywhere else. I'm not a betting expert by any means, but I do like to make a good final wager every once in a while. And I mostly just love the idea of shrewdly finding value in the market to turn your 
sports expertise into actual money. So to help you do that, we're actually planning on doing a, a betting show in January to help preview everything with friends of the show, Donald Lucician and Rob Pizzola. So stay tuned for that. That's going to be a fun one. In the meantime, you can get in on Bet Online's season opening bonuses today and start wagering on things like team totals, divisional odds, and even championship futures. So to get in on the fun, just head to Bet Online today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses they've got. Don't forget to let them know they sent you by using the promo code BLUEWIRE at BetOnline.ag. That's BLUEWIRE, all one word, at BetOnline.ag. All right, what age the worst? So I, I had Panarin going undrafted on my list. Um, I guess just like Jared Cowan and Eric Goodbranson. Like, so Cowan goes ninth overall in 2009. Goodbranson goes third overall in 2010. Um, you see it in this game where the red flags of what their NHL careers will wind up looking like, right? So on the first goal, Jared Cowan is just completely lost in terms of where the puck is. He just has no sort of positional, situational awareness in his own zone. And he's kind of looking around tries puck chasing, kind of doesn't know where to stand, and all of a sudden the puck's in the back of his net after a weird bounce. On the fourth goal, I believe, where Russia goes up, Goodbranson gets the puck in his own end up against the boards and like just completely butchers it, misplays it, the puck bounces on him. They, Russia winds up retrieving it, they do a cycle, and then eventually Panarin scores, and it all could have been avoided if he had just had any sort of ability to do anything with the puck. And those are sort of the red flags of like the trademarks of these sort of quote-unquote defensive defensemen from a past era where it's just like treating the puck like a grenade, just basically being big. I think Branson takes like a dumb boarding penalty in this game that was just so unnecessary. The puck was already kind of gone, and it's like... I'm all for, for physicality and for toughness, and I do think it has a, a place in even in today's game. But it needs to be functional. I mean, if the puck is gone and you're just just because you're big and strong, you're going to be like, oh, I'm, I'm going to be a bully right now. It's like that stuff's not effective. Like players aren't going to be like, oh, no, he hit me last time. So now I'm going to stay away. It's like that's not that's not how this works. And uh, people thought it was at the time. And so that's why these two guys were both top 10 picks and were prominently featured on Team Canada. And uh, yeah, it did not work out well for either guy at the NHL level. It did not. And and that that style of play really hasn't been effective in decades and decades before this event even, too, is like you said, is that cross checking a guy outside of the of the play. And, you know, sure. Yeah, he might have himself a bruise on his lower back, but he's still going to go at you next play. And he's going to hope you do it again because they're going to get two minutes on the power play, too. And then that's where they're going to cash in. And so watching good Branson, his whole NHL career has been about that is that this misplaced aggression is that when you need him to step up and lay a, an open ice hit or to, to clean up something on the boards there is that's when he goes soft. And then all of a sudden he, he throws this, you know, a stiff right or, or a cheap shot cross check in front of the net and it leads to a penalty against. And so I think you're right is that again, we talked about the peak of the Russian fear is like, I don't think this was peak of the, the giant slow moving defenseman in, in the modern era, but it's, it is a nice kind of snapshot of the disparity between the talent that they could have brought um, and that the you know the world was producing at the time and the the still what was in demand and that is you know are you six foot three 200 plus pounds and you can clear that front of the net okay you've you know you're going to have a home on this on this canadian blue line um and obviously you're going to have your name called early in nhl drafts too and now we're starting to see that go kind of go away the of the dinosaur which is which is good to see is that skill trumps all and and again this game is is kind of just part and parcel of that exact lesson that the world has had to learn is that skill will prevail on most nights skill will prevail yeah i, I had a couple of notes on terms of their nhl 
resume. Sakao in, in his final pro year in 1516 with the Sens, 42.1 on ice shot share at 515, 43.2 expected goals. Eric Branson, the only year he had a positive on ice goal differential at 515 was 2015-16, where the Panthers outscored teams 36 to 35. And uh, funny enough, that was the year that uh, you know Jim Benning saw that and was like, "Well, this is a great player, so I'm going to flip uh, Jared McCann a second and a fourth for him." So, um, yeah, it's uh, you know very cautionary tales. Um, another cautionary tale I've got here: Mark Vizentine. Um, mm. Oh my! So in the lead into this game, they flash a graphic that says he stopped 74 of 77 shots leading into this game in the tournament. I believe he stops the first like 17 or 18 shots of this game. They're like flashing to little kids holding signs that say Byzantine. Uh Got mm-hmm. me thinking how, uh, you know, if he had, if his career had panned out, we could have called it the, the Vizna trophy instead. I mean, there's, there's so many great plays on words here that we could have gone with Mark Byzantine. 2010, 27th overall pick. Had strong numbers for like a loaded OHL team and for, for Team Canada and the juniors. Plays one NHL game. He spent the majority of 2016-17 in the ECHL. Then in 2017-18, he plays one game for a league in Austria that's now called the Bet at Home Ice Hockey League. And then he's, reti- he's retired in his, uh, yeah. in his mid to late 20s, not playing hockey anymore. And um, yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy because, um, you know, goalies obviously are very unpredictable, especially I feel like with, with Team Canada goalies, it's very all over the place in terms of who's going to... Uh, play that role for them and how their careers are going to wind up turning out it's usually a goalie from a really good ohl team or something like that but um yeah it, it was a uh, Byzantine's career certainly I, I think when we're doing apex mountain like this was where he was professionally at an all-time apex and it was basically downhill after this tournament yeah he's 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 we're going to talk about him at the apex mountain for sure as, as i'm with you there too is yeah a lot of things went wrong for that to fall apart and I'm sure that wasn't what led to his career ending, you know, such a short time later or not having any success at the NHL level. But uh, but this was definitely a peak performance by him. All right. Here's a great one. Um, so Tyson Berry makes a great defensive play to knock mm-hmm. the puck off Kuznetsov stick in the first period. And, and it, it was like he doesn't take a penalty. He kind of dives and, and, and knocks it mm-hmm. off. It was a very like Jacob Slavin type play. And um, Gord Miller points out Tyson Berry hasn't been on the ice for a goal against in this tournament. In the second period, Ryan Rishok does one of those kind of cutaway promos where he's standing in, in the stands and he's talking about how the coaches have been raving about Tyson Berry, how he's completely changed the style of play, how he's so defensively responsible. And, uh, you know, they're kind of joking like, haha, he doesn't usually play this way with his club team. We'll see if that carries over. And uh, all these years, I, I can definitely say with certainty <laughs> that it did not carry over. It did not. And that's I was, you know, lending to it earlier when when guys put on the national jersey is that they they go all out on on both sides of the puck if they can. And so that that Tyson Berry play, that's what kind of brought that up for me is that we've we, I don't know if we've ever seen him make a play like that again. Um, and, and he could he could do it right. He's got the speed and, and you just got to have the desire. I've always thought that for players to play strong defense is that you need to be smart. You need to be hardworking, um, and and then if you can, if you have those two things, that that anyone can play strong defense. Uh, so it's it's kind of a knock on players who don't because it's either you're not smart or you're not working hard. And and so for Tyson Berry, I think it's it's the latter of those of those two elements too. And it is kind of fun to see when when these guys do lay out and you look back and then you see where their careers went. And you know, compared to a Ryan Ellis, who everybody kind of labeled as a as an all offense guy too in junior. 
but you see him play just everything and be, you know, skating like he's six foot six and two forty, uh, but also bringing that offensive game. And then Tyson Berry trying to back that up too. But where their careers went after that point, yep. just drastically different. Do you have any other what age the worst? Uh, no, that's all I got for age the worst. All right, yeah. let's go to uh, the TSN turning point here then for a game that was on TSN. So, um, I mean, clearly, I think the you know the two goals, thirteen seconds apart or whatever in the in the third period. You could point to that. I'll actually go a bit before that because halfway through the second period or so, I guess Canada goes up 3-0 on Braden Shen's goal. Russia makes the goalie switch, right? They bring in Igor Bobkov. And literally in the next shift, he makes this ridiculous save on Marcus Foligno, who has a wide open tap in on the side of the net. And then the puck kind of goes around to the point. There's a point shot. Zach Cassian tips it. It goes off the post. The goal light goes on. People think Canada went up 4 nothing. They have this sustained pressure, and then it kind of like the puck goes out of play or something, and it goes to a TV timeout. And that was basically the last like sustained uh, kind of bout of puck possession and actual offense that Canada had for essentially this entire game after that point. And it felt like, you know, if they go up there for nothing, you could certainly make the case like this game just kind of gets out of hand and the lead becomes insurmountable. Um, but instead, it stays at three nothing, and eventually we know how it winds up turning out. So I would, I would argue that the turning point actually came even before that third period because there was certainly like a, a moment of where it was kind of in the balance of potentially just getting completely out of hand for Russia, and they kind of stayed in it and kept it at least at a manageable three three goal deficit. Yeah, I have that written down as one of them too. I, you know, I wrote down the easy thing to say would be, you know, Panarin breaking the shutout and kind of getting that ball rolling. Um, I have Igor Bobkov, and, and I think you know we can talk about him a little bit here at the the biggest heat check performance too. Mm, yep. um, but another one, and, and you you alluded to it earlier, was you know that that boarding penalty that good Branson took in the middle of the second period um you know until that point russia they had basically no sustained offense or creativity they, they looked stale they looked a little overwhelmed by the canadians and and the pressure and the crowd and everything going on and that power play while they didn't score on it it seemed to invigorate them it, it woke them up and their next five on five shift they had some pop and and you know you'd see panarin and tarasenko out there and they're moving and they're making some craftier plays and you could just start to see the tide was not maybe turning against the Canadians, but it was starting to even out. And and that was that that misguided aggression by Good Branson opening the door for that too. Um I, I, I don't think that there's in a game, you know, you can really you can often look back and be like, that was a moment that changed everything. And the goals, the three goals, the, the quick ones, uh, that obviously was clear to everyone. But but sometimes it's it's little things. It's it's a missed breakout pass that all of a sudden you're pinched in your zone. And again, that maybe the other team doesn't score, but it feeds them life. It gives the the bench hope in it. And I think that 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 power play that they got off that dumb boarding penalty, I, I think that really invigorated them. Well, there was another kind of crossroads moment with four minutes left in the second. Tarasenko's kind of falling. Marcus Foligno awkwardly crashes into him. Mm. And Tarasenko is just completely like laying flat on the ice and has to get like, kind of helped off with, you know, he, he can't even really skate off on his own. And you're like wondering, like, oh, is that the last we're going to see of Tarasenko in this game? Like, you know, it, it looked very bleak. And then obviously he comes back and he scores uh, a big goal in the third period and looks like Vlad Tarasenko. And, and certainly, um, you know, if he hadn't been around for that, if he had been too hurt to con- to continue, you wonder if Russia would have been able to mount that comeback. So, yeah, that was another sort of moment there where it kind of looked like this. You know, it's still three nothing. We don't know what's about to happen, but it could have gone in an entor- entirely different direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, without a doubt. And then I, I think I think one more final one is that 
I don't know if it was a turning point, but I, I mentioned it earlier too. Is that that setup by Kuznetsov to Tarasenko for the three three goal? Like just holding the puck so calm, the body control and body positioning. It he he reminded me of it throughout the whole game, but that play in particular, like, that was Yermer Yager stuff where it just you couldn't take the puck off of him, and then he makes that gorgeous play. Um, that was kind of I think the dagger, even though it was three three at that point. That was kind of curtains for for the Canadians is that they were they were, they could see everything is going against them now. Well, and and what it signified too, right? Because I think the first goal was kind of this weird bounce off the backboards. Then the second one was Kuznetsov just kind of you know, bull rushing the puck to the net, and then a rebound goes in. But that one was sort of the 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 encapsulation of like, okay, like yeah, we're more talented and better than you, and this is me flexing what I can do, and you can't do anything to stop it. And it felt like that mm-hmm. really. And then after that, you see like there's certainly much more creativity in their game. They're passing it around. The fourth goal is like this kind of give and go from from behind the net, and and they just like the, the entire sort of tenor of the game shifted, and Russia started playing a much more skill based game. So yeah, that, I think that's a that's a good call. Um, the biggest heat check. Yeah, I'm going Bobkov. Uh, you know, you, you were talking about there is that those huge saves that he made coming in cold in a three nothing game where all the adrenaline is for the other team and the fans and, and going on there. And he made several big stops on the PK, you know, ice water in the veins type of things. Um, he made another big, big save uh, right after Russia made it three two that, you know, all of a sudden if Canada goes back up four two, you know, we might be looking at something, something completely different. But, you know, he was a wall that that entire time that he was in there. No big rebounds, really calm. And, and I think that that calming presence also helped change it you know got the russians being like okay okay we can do this let's just keep him at three and we, and we can come back and so for me yeah, bobkov he, he was he was a beast for for them in that one well and you, you know you're talking about ellis and sort of so much of this depends on where you go right he goes to the ducks organization and is kind of um you know blocked a little bit in, in net especially you know they have they have all these goalies ahead of him and then eventually like freddie anderson and john gibson and he never really gets a sustained look he's kind of bounced around the ahl and echl putting up reasonable numbers along the way mm-hmm. uh was a third round pick and um you know he's been spent this the past six years i believe in the khl the past couple of years he's been putting up just ridiculous numbers and i wouldn't be surprised if, if we hear from him again similar to like Miko Koskinen or something, for example, it feels like it's kind of that career arc where like as a 31 or 32 year old, maybe Paolo Francis sort, sort of like he comes over, some team signs him to a one or two year deal and he becomes like a very interesting name that all of a sudden is on the NHL radar again. No, I, I think you're right too. It was, it, it is interesting to, to go back and kind of look at his career arc because, you know, I have seen him there playing for Vanguard in Omsk um, and he's been, he's been tremendous now for a few years, like you were saying too. And and so Miko Koskinen, he was the one that kind of jumped out to me too, uh, is that that type of player, you know, he's six foot six. Um, he's driving a, a really good team there for Vanguard too. So it, it would be fun to see him get another opportunity and, and come over and, and maybe, you know, come on with a team that, that's really lacking in goaltender depth and be a, a quick one a starter for a team it's uh be maybe it would be the new peak performance for uh for a player yeah um i got cody you can hear i guess it's a bit a bit of a cheat just because he's on the first line i guess he's playing with brady shen uh brain shen at 515 and he doesn't really produce much offensively in this game but i just thought he was awesome in terms of creating chances you could argue he was sort of one of the most effective players on the ice out there and his career arc is fascinating too right like they're talking in this game about how he won the calder cup playing with Hershey and the Capitals organization the year before as a teenager. He's putting up huge numbers in the WHL. He makes the caps the following year as a 20-year-old. And then he kind of gets caught in the shuffle of that peak, like George McPhee freaking out and panic trading 
Philip Forsberg, we always think about that as the disastrous trade, but he traded Cody Eakin for 48 games of Mike Ribeiro during that uh, lockout shortened season in 2012-13, and he goes to the Stars and then eventually bounces around, plays a role in Vegas. And so Cody Eakin as well, like he was heavily featured in this game and played really well. So I kind of wanted to give him some love. You know who else uh, really stuck out? Dmitry Orlov. Mm-hmm. It was amazing yeah. in this game, I thought, especially creating off the rush. Like he was... He had the uh, he had the green light in this game. He was allowed to do whatever he wanted, and he was uh, he was creating. Yeah, no, for sure. I, I think I had Eakin written down there too, but I didn't know if it was cheating because he was playing on that top line. And but he was great, right? He he was the player that he became in the NHL, more of a, a complimentary guy that was getting in there on the forecheck and and causing havoc and and could play with skilled players. And I think that that's what we've seen him from him in the NHL too. Is when he's elevated up the lineup, he can still hang too. Um, but Dmitry Orlov, like he was their their D for the Russians. Like he was everywhere. He was so so good. He put up over a point a game in that tournament, I believe. Um, playing defensively, he was their Ryan Ellis, basically. Um, so yeah, I think I think a shout out to Orlov too. Again, I, someone who played very very prominently. So I'm not sure if it was a depth player stepping up, but just a an impressive showing from him. Anyway, I like the. I'm going to give the Bob Bobkov call there. I think that was the right choice. Um, the biggest that guy. I think on Team Canada, there's certainly no shortage of them. Yeah, yeah, there was a there was a few, you know, like I've got a couple written down here, but uh, you know, Louis LeBlanc, uh, you know, I, I'm pretty sure he played in the show that next year, yeah. and then never never got back there again. And so a classic Habs pick, who you know they they got to get their French Canadians. Um, but the guy I'm going with is Curtis Hamilton. So I think he's that prototypical 20 year old kid who can play a heavy game, who fills a role for for Team Canada. There seems to be one every year, except for when there's these all-star teams. Um, and then he basically, he, we didn't hear from him ever again after the, that, the, after that tournament, the, right? The Brett Leeson Memorial. Exactly, yes. It's, yes, uh, there's one every season. Uh, when I saw Hamilton, I was like, is that Freddie Hamilton? Like, right? I was like, who the hell is Curtis Hamilton? Like, he was playing on the yeah. fourth line, I believe, so he wasn't playing a huge role for them, but I was like, what? Like so random, yeah. Louis LeBlanc, Carter Ashton, Carter Ashton, yeah, first rounder, right? Game, scores a sweet goal in this game, gets mauled by Eric Branson after. Um, yeah. yeah, no, he was. I think he was a Tampa pick, and then he went to Toronto, and then now he's kicking around the KHL. Um, but yeah, no, Canada certainly has uh, has no shortage of them. Uh, was there anyone on on the Russian team that um, you know you were intrigued by that never wound up either just coming over to the NHL or just kind of just stayed in the KHL and has had a good career, but you're always like, Oh, like, man, if only that guy came over. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I don't know if anyone really jumped off the page for me. Um, you know, what's his name? Golbalev had a good tournament, uh, yeah. but uh, he was someone who I don't think was ever really on the, on the NHL radar. He spent his entire career in, in Russia too. So, um, yeah, I mean, Sergey Kalinin, he, he, you know, he's got some speed and stuff who played some stuff, but no, I don't think anybody really Bobkov would probably be the guy yeah. who, who I, at, at six foot six and he had that, he had that strong showing there. He actually seemed like a guy. I'm pretty sure I had him on my radar for fantasy after that too. I was like, Oh, this guy's big and he can play like that could be something down the line. Yep. Yep. How about you? Um, no, I think you're right. I, I think, well, actually I was, I totally forgot that Nikita Zaitsev was on this team. Like I, just never thought about him until he came over to the Leafs all those years later, right? And I was like, oh, this guy kind of just came out of nowhere. He was playing in the KHL, but he was, I guess he was like injured for a lot of this tournament. So maybe that's why I didn't remember. And they're talking this game about how he basically didn't play for a large chunk of it and then just stepped up in this game because um, he kind of had to. But yeah, it was, uh, he was kind of a biggest that guy, even though he obviously now uh, is playing ridiculous minutes for an Ottawa Senators team that for some <laughs> reason is playing him that much. But um, the most unanswerable questions 
we've actually kind of already gotten to a couple of them for me. Um, but in the broadcast, they're talking about, you know, Zaitsev and they say he's used to not playing much because he's playing eight minutes a night for his KHL team. And I guess it's an answerable question, but like when you brought up Pot Colson, for example, and it's still a thing all these years later, our question of like, are these prospects being developed properly because of all the behind the scenes politics where maybe they're playing on a loaded team, maybe they're playing on a team that just values their veterans more and maybe they like want to make them prove it to know that they're, you know, going to be loyal for the long haul and actually stay and not bold for the NHL. But it's all, it's these young players that are just, it's great to see them playing in a professional league and, and playing against grown men. But when you're playing like six to eight minutes a night, when you're getting yo-yoed around, it's tough to know whether that is the optimal route for a young player to, to be going in their kind of peak development years. I think that's a terrific question too. And that uh, at this point, I don't know if it is answerable. It's, it's really challenging because like you said, you want to see them playing in a, in a, a league that gives them competition and will force them to elevate their game to play up to it. But you know, if you're being healthy scratched, if you're sitting on the bench for entire games, like pod Colson and Roddy on Amaroff and some of these guys are doing in the KHL is that, is that really what you want from them in their, these formative developmental seasons? And so that's, I think it lends credence to that fear of Russia too, right? Is that, it is not a developmental league. And you could say the same thing about the Finnish Liga or the SHL, but when, you know, the cream rises over there too, and they aren't shy to loan players out to the Allsvenskin or to move them to a lesser team where they're going to have a bigger role. It seems like in Russia is that, you know, they're going to hold on to these players just in case they want to come back at 27 and they still own those rights. Um, even if they're going to kind of spoil the the relationship a little bit by by holding them back, is that how much, how much is that going to impact them? And, and I, I took note of that too when they were talking about Zaitsev is uh, I, I kind of laughed is that yes that that still happens today is that you know he's not used to playing these minutes because he doesn't and then you know this year for Pod Colson it's going to feel like he's playing every minute of every game because he's just so used to sitting on the bench or seeing fourth line action um, it's going to be interesting to see this kind of these these stallions unleashed and, and pulled off the hitch post and, and kind of let to run free well okay on a related note another unanswerable question for me is how do we use tournaments like this to evaluate young players, right? Because such a bright light is on them. It's on a national stage. They're playing against, in theory, um, the best players in their age brackets, their peers. And so you want to see how they respond to that pressure, how they respond against tougher competition, especially for players that are playing in, you know, major junior in Canada. And it's like, all right, they're putting up crazy points against very kind of lackluster competition. Let's see how they do against players who are playing in, in pro leagues overseas. And so that's certainly interesting. But then at the same time, it's like, these are a handful of games. Ultimately, it's probably unfair because a player's performance may very well not be representative of their actual capabilities they may be changing their game to fill a role on this team uh, and it might not actually be who they are as a player also it's tough to know like the opportunity is it actually being handed out as a meritocracy or are there behind the scenes politics of certain players being favored more than others not just for russia for for every team and so you don't want to put too much stock in a guy who's just getting, you know, the jet back placed on his back and he's playing all these minutes on the top line, but he might not actually be deserving, whereas a very talented player is stuck on the fourth line or as the seventh defenseman. And so you can't properly gauge how good they are. So I understand why we put a lot of stock into this tournament, but in terms of like developing in terms of developing opinions on these players and sort of 
uh, using it as a puzzle piece for all of the other samples of games and data we have on them? How do we sort of weigh that and value that compared to everything else? Yeah, that's a terrific question and one that's very, very layered. And, you know, there's it's a perfect litmus test, I think, for talent evaluators is is this event every year is that, you know, I was just chirping 30, 31 GMs for not for not taking note of Artemi Panarin. But at the same time, is that if you put too much stock into this event, you're likely to lead yourself down a rabbit hole that you don't want to go to. So, you know, here in Vancouver, in the market, Ole Ulevi right tremendous 17 year old tournament for the for the Finns. he was so good but you know that was the team with puliarvi and aho and line a and they were all kids and they were just running rough shot right and and so you know, jim benning went to that tournament and he saw yolevi and he said hey there's my top pairing defenseman you need to take the whole picture it's like you said it's we're looking at five to seven games in the middle of the season where you could get hot you could be cold you could be you know not getting the deployment needed uh, you could be battling an injury any number of things can happen that'll impact your play there so uh, there's this old adage from from smart people anyways is that a world juniors or an ivan Holinka or u18s it shouldn't bring a player's stock down but it can raise a player's stock. So when you get this this information from it, it's like, yeah, like look at what a kid like Braden Shen did at that event. Like that's that's telling you something that this guy's going to be good. Or you know, Alexis Lafreniere in his draft year, right? Yeah. Like we, he didn't put up as the year before. He didn't put up the big numbers, and then you see, you know, the roles elevated, the points are there. This is what we have. The same thing you could look at at Quentin Byfield in his draft year. He's playing as the thirteenth forward. He's not putting up the points. That's not telling the whole story, right? So. I think that it is that you can glean some information. You can take some information from this event because, like you said, it's it's high pressure. You want to know how how kids and players are going to react when they're under that type of limelight. Uh, but at the same time, is that like if you're going to write things, chisel things in stone afterwards, is that's why I think you're going to paint yourself into a corner. All right. Well, on a related note, another unanswerable question is, you know, we were talking how Russia usually views this tournament as, as kind of like 19-year-old players. And I think they noted that Kuznetsov was the only one who was eligible to play the following year for this team. Um, for Canada, did they actually bring and use their best players? Like, I think like the the selection process for Team Canada has always been uh, a hot, uh, hot topic, right? Like we, we debate it and you often see like very, very talented players sometimes are kind of like ostracized or just like not included for whatever reason. You're like, huh, that's kind of weird. And, you know, with this team, like there's good players, obviously, throughout the lineup. But at the same time, you look at it and it's like, wow, was this was this really the best Canada had to offer in this given year? Like that seems seems dubious. But at the same time, we do have the benefit of knowing how their careers wind up turning out. Right. So you kind of have to evaluate it as like, what were the conversations back in 2010 like in terms of players that were being left off versus players that are being included? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question too. As I quickly scroll through some CHL stats to see who who didn't make the team that year, and and you know a kid like Mark Stone jumps out there who's who played on it for the next year uh, and scored all those big big goals for for the Canadians, but he was left off after putting up over 100 points uh, in 2010 2011. So uh, it's. It's going to be debated every year, especially with a team like Canada, right? Is that where they could put together two teams and you could, you know, do an A team, B team, and that B team could probably challenge for a medal, or you could split them up and go even Steven and, and both teams could go for gold sort of thing. And so there's always going to be guys that are going to be left behind. Um, there's always going to be the arguments, the debates over it too, is that I think that when you're building a team, you're not always taking the most skilled players, right? And so... 
at this time, they were looking for building that role where, you know, you have your heavy fourth line, you have your shutdown third line, you've got your two scoring lines. And then on your on the blue line, you want big, you want strong, and you maybe you slide in a Ryan Ellis to move the puck. And I think that that's changed a little bit now where the team building process is three scoring lines and a shutdown line. Or, you know, your shutdown line can still score. Um, and you want puck movers on the back end. Maybe you're going to have one one monster that you're going to slide out there to, to clear the front of the net on a PK sort of thing. But I think the the creation, the chemistry of a team has has is always evolving, and and that's what you want to see too. But I, I think at this point in time, you could definitely argue that that the best players weren't necessarily there. Well, I think they did themselves a disservice too because you look at it and it's like their one strength was kind of talent down the middle, right? They had Braden Shen as their one one C, they had Ryan Johansson as their two C, they had Casey Sizikas as their fourth center, and then I think in that pursuit of building a team. They're like, all right, Sean Couturier is our third line center. In theory, how many forwards did they actually have that were better than Sean Couturier, even at the time, based on his profile and how he was producing in the queue? Like, you could argue that he would have been better suited just getting him more minutes and playing him in the top six on the wing and trying to front load your lines, especially against a Russian team that wasn't particularly deep and just basically had three offensive talents up top and they were just kind of rolling those guys. So, stuff like that. And it's a kind of a good debate to have in terms of. Um, you know, you want everyone to sort of fill into that natural spot positionally, but sometimes if, if you're, you know, flush with talent at a certain position, maybe asking guys to play a different role just to get them more usage and more exposure might be the better way to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that speaks to how highly regarded Sean Couturier was at the time. You know, he was uh, he was their only draft eligible player, um, seventeen, maybe he just turned eighteen for that tournament. Um, but he was he was playing in Drummondville there, and he was pegged to be you know the first overall pick in twenty eleven, and he was talked about that going back a few years too. So I think that's why he was even on that team. Um, but I think you're absolutely right. Is that when you start loading up these 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 squads that are basically you know future all star teams, or you hope they are anyway, uh, is that you got you need to ask players. To, to move around the lineup. Uh, you know, Joe Sackick played in the wing for, for the, during the Olympics. Uh, Kirby Dock's going to do it this year, captain in Canada. Like, he's not even going to play the middle of the ice. He's a center in the NHL right now. So um, I think that hopefully we're, we're learning from that and that you, like you said, it's the chemistry of a team. You need to build and find the blocks that fit together well enough that you can, you can catch heat and, and ride to glory in a quick two-week tournament. Doc at Eddie's commentary corner. Um, mm. Gord Miller is like iconic on these games, right? Like I, I personally just grew up listening to Gord Miller call big world juniors games. And so like I associate those two so closely. I was disappointed that it's not Ray Ferraro doing the color commentary on this game. Like he is these years and it's instead Pierre Maguire who, um, wow. Um, let's, <laughs> let, let, let's get into it. I mean, I went back and rewatched during uh, this time off. I'm like just so desperate for hockey content and watching games. I went back and watched the full 2005 final recently, and Pierre Maguire is on that call as well. And he had takes about Ovechkin that would make Don Cherry blush. Like it was just crazy. He was, you know, he, at one point he's like, he's going to need to change his act if he wants to have a long career in the league. And it's like, I, I think it wound up, uh, you know, doing it his way wound up quite fine for Ovechkin. I don't think he needed the change. Um, and so, you know, he just had these crazy comments. And I think in the second period in this game, Panarin goes down and Gord Miller says, oh, Artemi Panarin fell there. And Pierre Maguire, just like, you can just hear the disgust in his voice. He's like, he dope. There's a difference. And it's that tone that I think has been such a disservice to the hockey community, right? Like with Don Cherries and with 
the Pierre Maguires on these national broadcasts where you're perpetuating that thinly veiled xenophobia. And, you know, you spoke about the Russian fear. I think contractually, it was very fair to wonder whether players would come over and as, a, as an asset, if you're investing in them, you need to know that you're going to get something from them down the road. I think evaluating them as actual players and talents is where I have such a massive issue with stuff like that, where you can just kind of tell that there is that complete sort of, oh, this player looks and plays different. And so that's bad. And that's not the Canadian way. That's not the North American way. And I just, I just hate stuff like that. I have no time for it. I've been fighting against it for years and years and I will continue to do so. And just watching this game, it's, it's very sort of eye opening how Pierre Maguire is speaking about some of the Russian players. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. And uh, it would be cool to have seen because I think they, they mentioned this was the first year that in Russia, it was the game was played on their number one network. Mm-hmm. And it was the overnight game. So how that, you know, that game would have been the framing of it would have been from the Russian side of things, right? Um, to get a look through those the, the lens like that versus the the TSN all Canadian network sort of thing where we get a Pierre Maguire who is going to be so slanted in one direction. I picked up on that too. I had a little quick note about that. But Aaron did dive, you know, in the middle of the second period. I know, that was, that but was a, if a Canadian but, but player no, falls, there's saying. no way he's going to be calling him out for that. Exactly. And that's what I was going to say is that if it was the other way around, you know, he probably would have had no comment. It would just like, wouldn't oh, have been anything. Crafty, oh, down he goes. play, drawing a penalty. Like, look, yeah, man, that's gamesmanship. Yeah. It's like, oh, come on. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, um, yeah, I, I think we've come, unfortunately, we've we've come to, we've just become accustomed to that from from guys like Milbury and from Cherry and from uh, from Pierre Maguire is that, that, that xenophobia is, it's been around for a long time and it's unacceptable. And it's, you know, just because a player looks different or plays differently is that it, that doesn't make one better than the other. And that's it's almost like an insecurity that that Canada, the Canadian way is the only way and it's the best way. And that's I, I picked up on that a little bit, too, uh, which is which is disappointing for sure. Ray Ferraro is far superior in my regard. Yeah. And it's a shame because I think he has elements in this broadcast where, like I said, he's talking about Zaitsev's usage with his KHL team. And I was like, oh, that was a that was we, we joke about how Pierre Maguire shouts out where this player played when he was a 13-year-old, but that's actually relevant information for this example, right? He he breaks down Canada's tactics on that first goal, how Cassian's filling space and how they get the puck set up cross ice for the Ellis goal. And it's like, oh, this is actual like useful X's and O's breakdown stuff that I want to hear from my from my commentator. He's in the second period, he's warning, he's like, Canada's changed the way they're playing. They're not aggressive enough. Like this is a dangerous for them. And the entire time he's saying that and it winds up being correct. And I was like, yeah, that was a good piece of relevant information that he shared with the with the viewer back at home. And I'd love to see a lot more of that and a lot less of this player's Russian. Therefore, I don't like the the way he's playing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're absolutely right because it's true. Yeah, McGuire gets a lot of hate for all his silly anecdotes and and just the 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 information that is needless when he talks about his some kid's roommate when they were playing at prep school when they were 15. Um, but he does have that just encyclopedia brain where he has all those tidbits and knowledge in there. And like you said, he's obviously he's got a good mind for the game where he can break down plays and he can see what happened and why they happen. And that's useful information. But it's just how the whole thing is packaged and produced to the audience is that's where we get into trouble. Um, he he, he did have another one where he called it too, is that, you know, at the end there, this is the greatest collapse in the history of the world juniors. And, you know, I'm, I'm old enough to remember Canada losing to Kazakhstan in 1998 and, and getting an eighth place finish, mostly because a local kid from where that, uh, that where I grew up in Comox there, he, Brett McLean, he was on that team and he used to come skate with us. And he was like our hero when we were kids. Uh, and he was on that team, unfortunately, but 
you know, McGuire nailed that one. That was the greatest collapse in the history of the world juniors. Yeah. Yes, it was. Um, and it should be framed that way. Not, um, although I also, uh, framed as a great comeback by Russia because it certainly mm-hmm. was, um, apex mountain. This is a tricky one because it's a game involving a bunch of teenagers. So it's kind of sad to be like, all right, this was as good as it got for them. Um, but it is a harsh reality. And especially with the way this team Canada team was constructed uh there's a number of players that you could very fairly argue it was all downhill professionally after this point uh you know we talked about i think Vizentine is like the the peak example because he never even really made it to the nhl as a first round pick um i would lump in you know cowan at least at least good branson has had an extended career and has stayed in the league and teams for whatever reason seem to keep acquiring him um but yeah, with guys like Howen and Dylan Olson, they were just like out of the league so quickly and very, very quickly. It was apparent like we're not NHL caliber players. It's uh, you could you could argue their stock as kind of hockey assets was at an all time high at this point because they were representing their country and they were first round picks and they were producing at the lower levels. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and you know, we talked about that at length already too. And it's the same. We we've hit on basically all I had to say about that is is Byzantine for me. I think that this tournament was the high water mark. You know, higher than going twenty seventh overall, which is a great kind of feather in your cap. But you know, to steal the starters gig and then to come into the gold medal game riding high with like a nine sixty save percentage and like you said to up three nothing, stopping everything, and then to to lose like that. You know, that's Apex Mountain and maybe the lowest low in his career too. Right, all in all in one game. Yes. Yeah, it was. Well, at least he yeah. like, he he did bounce back in the sense that like I think he was good in the OHL the following year and, and was good for Canada again at the World Juniors. So it's not like you could kind of point to this and be like, okay, after this, he just completely fell apart. But certainly in terms mm-hmm. of becoming a professional hockey player, it did not work out. Um, who won the game? I'm very curious to see what yeah. for this. Yeah, I uh, I got a few things here. I think that fans outside of Canada were probably the big winners <laughs> of that game because like I, I mentioned earlier, I think that the way that Canada dominates this event is that nobody outside of without a Canadian citizenship uh, passport, they're, they're, everyone's rooting against Canada. Um, so, so the Russians obviously were the big winners and their fans getting to see that game on that number one network, uh, watching it overnight. Um, I'm sure the Americans were all rooting against Canada even though they couldn't get tickets to go to the game and watch it and cheer against them um you know i think i think that that were those were the big winners of it and i also think that maybe we could look at and this one might be a little outside the box is that that team canada were were the winners of this in that maybe they start to change their approach to team building Mm. is that so hockey canada yeah Hockey Canada, yes. I should say. Yeah, Hockey Canada. Um, is that you see what skill can do for you versus those big lumbering players. And that, you know, a player like Ryan Ellis, who isn't your prototypical top pairing defender for Team Canada, has just done over the years now. And then that was kind of the peak performance was in that tournament and in that game, too, was well, playing look like he was banged up and, and that you don't need to be six foot three and 220 pounds to, to play it for this team and to, to make an impact, too. I think that's a really good submission. Mine was Evgeny Kuznetsov because in the quarterfinals, so if we're just like stretch it back for this tournament, right? As a, in the quarterfinals, they're down 3-1 to Finland with like four minutes left. He basically just like wails the puck into the net twice and then snipes the overtime winner to get them to the semis. They also wind up coming back to beat Sweden. And then in this game, he just 
takes over, right? Like in the third period, it felt like the puck was on his stick for 99% of the ice time. Like he was just getting it into the offensive zone, retrieving it, creating, flexing his muscles with that spin around pass. He had three assists in this period, um, was the best player on the ice. You know, I think we talked about how the spin move for that third goal was like creatively and skill wise, like so, such a embodied what was happening this game. But after they score that first goal to make it 3-1, Literally the next shift, he hops over the boards, he gets the puck, and he just right away just goes full speed at Dylan Olsen and overwhelms him, and they score just like that, and that was that kind of turning point. So just his ability to control this game and be the best player. And and ironically enough, you know, like, he's never been the biggest burner by any means, but in this game, I think it was aesthetically because of, like, the skates he was wearing, he just looked so, like, bulky and lumbering, but he was getting to wherever he wanted on the ice because he kind of had that level of, like, deception and art art artful tactic with the puck where defenders just couldn't like aggressively uh stay on him so they had to stay, kind of be on their heels just to kind of keep up with him and he was getting to wherever he wanted on the ice and controlling the play and um you know he was just just awesome i, I thought he was the best player and, and so I, I thought he uh he won this game but you know that line as a whole obviously it's kind of tough to just isolate him you kind of have to look at all three of them Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I have Kuznetsov as one of those guys, too, is that, you know, like we mentioned, he's the only 18 year old on that team, um, barely able to come back the next year just by a couple of weeks, I think his birthday. But, you know, that's where I, I saw that Yager, that Mario kind of comparison is that you're right. He wasn't flying around out there. He was just getting anywhere he wanted and then protecting the puck and you just couldn't get away from him. And that's what we saw from those guys in you know the early 90s in the clutch and grab era, even when people are hanging off of them, he still couldn't stop them. And that's kind of the level that Kuznetsov was playing. I had a note at the very top here too, you know, legacy of the game. What I remember is, you know, I remember Kuznetsov just swooping and doodling all over the ice and just scaring the shit out of me every time he had the puck, <laughs> which was basically every time he was on the ice. And he was doing it mostly from the second line too, right? Where the three of them were tossed out there together for for chunks of it, especially when the game started to get closer. But, you know, for a lot of the time there, he was he was out there kind of doing it by himself and making things happen and controlling the play and, and gaining the zone. And so, you know, I think that really kind of elevated the hype around how good could this player be and how long do we have to wait before he can come to the NHL and start showcasing that. And, you know, I don't think he's lived up to that to that hype and that's probably just because it rose so so much over those three four years that we had to wait for him and because we got to see him just dominate at, at the world junior sort of thing is that you know we had visions of you know is this guy going to be a 100 and 120 point player sort of thing and he's obviously had a terrific career great player still but uh you know we could almost say apex mountain for him i'm not going to go that far though yeah well i would say his apex mountain is probably i guess what in 2018 when the caps won the cup like the the overtime yeah. winner to finally beat the penguins and and all that but yeah you're right i mean think about it like after this he's the only player from this team that comes back he leads the tournament in scoring the following year i think he has 13 points in seven games he takes Russia all the way to the final and then we don't really see him for like three years like he, mm. you hear about him you see the stats you watch the the highlight videos we were like when is this guy gonna come over and then finally three years later he comes over and he's playing for the caps and it's such like an odyssey like especially now in 2020 when with top prospects you're just like they're waiting three years like it's like oh, i gotta see this guy on my nhl team immediately so um it's 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 quite a quite a mind mender especially when you think about a 2023 class as you alluded to earlier and, and seeing where uh, winchkov's gonna go and, and how that's gonna work out 
Yeah, for sure. And and nowadays too, with with I think social media and just how many people are tracking overseas games and stuff, maybe a little more pandemic related too. But you would have just been inundated with Kuznetsov clips if if he was doing that in 2020 over in the in the KHL. But like you said, we just we just didn't see him. We just heard. You know, he's still doing really well and get excited for when he does eventually come. All right, Cam. Well, uh, we did it. We got through this game. It's the uh, full ones on YouTube. It's uh, it's actually like. The quality of the broadcast is, is fantastic, um, and I would highly recommend if uh, if you're bored out there, go go and uh, go watch the game or at least watch the highlights. It was a really fun one. Uh, very, uh, there's a lot. Uh, hopefully, we got to a lot of the kind of interesting topics, but there's a lot to dissect in this game, and we could only get to so much of it. Um, plug some stuff. Where can people check you out? What are you up to these days? And uh, all that good stuff. Yeah, yeah. So uh, obviously, hockey underscore Robinson on Twitter. Uh, we've got a. Just a ton of World Junior content coming out this week uh, at Dauber Prospects and at EP Rinkside. Um, I've been ticking away working on my player point projections for this year, which I've done the last few years, and uh, I'll pick a, a nice charity organization and, and split up the money halfway there. Uh, so that's always fun. We raised uh, like 600 bucks to save the Amazon rainforest last year, which was amazing. Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's what's going on here. I've just been watching watching a lot of game film, a lot of, a lot of overseas stuff, and, and, and doing my thing. Awesome, enjoy and the PDO cast. It's really easy to do. It only takes a minute of your time. And yeah, you can just leave the five-star rating. You can actually leave a little yeah, sounds uh, good, but review, a good time. drop a line, tell people why you enjoy the show or why you recommend they check it out. And uh, yeah, it goes a long way to towards helping us out. I personally really appreciate it. And it's just a nice thing to do this holiday season. So to all of you out there, um, happy holidays. Stay safe. Uh, enjoy the start of the World Juniors coming up here. And we're going to be back next week with a couple shows. We're still going to um, do a couple more episodes here to round out 2020. And then once we get into the new year and the start of January, we're going to have a lot of preview content to look forward to. So already lining up some great guests and got some great ideas that I, I can't wait to execute. So thanks for sticking with us. Thanks for listening to the show and uh, business is about to pick up here. We were kind of scrounging around trying to create some content and have some fun uh, without knowing when hockey was going to be back. But hockey is back now. We have a date. We have a plan. And so looking forward to it. So happy holidays to everyone out there listening. And here's the outro music. Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey PDOcast.